term Advent uh, comes from the Latin. It means coming or arrival. And Advent is a season dedicated, much like Lent is to Easter, Advent is to uh, to Christmas. And it's a season of preparation in anticipation of the celebration of Christ's birth. But Advent is more than just an opportunity to nostalgically reflect back upon Christ's birth as though we were kind of looking through the family photo album to look back at Jesus' cute baby pictures. Oh, that's so sweet, right? But rather, Advent is not a chance just to look back to celebrate Christ's birth, to prepare for Christ's birth for his first Advent or his first arrival or coming, but it also is a way of helping us anticipate and to think about Christ's second Advent. So the way that we prepare ourselves for the first Advent is a way of preparing ourselves for Christ's second Advent. Oftentimes when we think as Christians about the the story that God is writing through human history, we will sometimes think that the story climaxes with the birth, death, and resurrection of Christ, so that all that comes before is pointing towards Jesus and his first Advent, and all that comes after is looking back to Jesus and his first advent. But that's actually not quite how the Bible puts the story together. The first advent anticipates and finds its climax and consummation in the second advent. Jesus began the great work of redemption at his first coming, but he completes it at his second coming. So the great hope of the world that we celebrate through the season of advent is not simply to remind ourselves that the Lord has come, but that he will come again to finish what he started. And so the season of Advent, which remembers and anticipates Christ's first coming, at the same time teaches us how to expectantly and patiently wait for Christ's second coming. And so that's what we want to do in part with this sermon series, is throughout this season to look at the way that the people of God waited for the coming of Christ in his first advent as a way of informing ourselves how we should wait for his coming for his second. So our sermon series is entitled Journey to Bethlehem. And this idea of journey isn't a reference to the physical journey of arriving at Bethlehem, like we can think of the wise men journeying to Bethlehem or the shepherds out in the fields making their way to the manger at Bethlehem or perhaps even Mary and Joseph making their way to Bethlehem. We're not looking at the physical journey to Bethlehem, but the prophetic journey to Bethlehem. So in our series, we're going to journey with the Old Testament prophets as they make their way to Bethlehem. Jesus's arrival in Bethlehem that first Christmas morning, of course, was not a Uh, not a just happy coincidence, but had been foreordained by God, the Bible tells us, from the foundations of the world. Before God even made the world, Jesus was already in God's mind there in Bethlehem. And clues of his coming arrival were woven throughout the Old Testament history and the prophetic witness, speaking of the day when Messiah, the anointed of God, would come to make everything new. And so throughout this season of Advent, we're going to be looking at some of the key prophecies in Jewish history that pretend of Christ's coming. There are more than we'll be able to look at throughout our series, but we're going to focus in on a number of the key prophecies that speak of Christ's coming. Who is the coming Messiah? What will he be like? What will he accomplish? The sermon series, or the sermon title for this morning, 
is called the coming avenger. Then we'll look at Jesus as the coming king. The week following, the coming son, the coming sin bearer, the coming healer. And then I'm excited for this. Pastor Manfred will be concluding a sort of post-Advent sermon for us on the last Sunday of December called The Lord is Come. And uh, this will be Pastor Manfred's first uh, sermon here at Calvary, so we want to be especially uh, kind to him. But he is uh, excited about that. He's nervous about preaching in Spanish, though, so, or, or, or rather preaching in English with Spanish as his first language. So we're going to have a good time with Manfred, I can guarantee it. And, um, but looking at what it means that the Lord has already come, right? And so we're looking at this coming, this coming Son of God, this coming Messiah. And what does the Bible give us to understand about who he is? All right, so our journey this morning towards Bethlehem through the prophetic witness is going to begin in Genesis chapter 3, which was already read for us. This is the very first prophecy that indicates that someone will come who will redeem God's people. And I want to, as we, as we work our way through Genesis 3, I want us to think about Genesis 3 um, for, from two particular angles. We're going to do two different things uh, with this text. I want to see two things here. First, we want to see the way in which God's people are deceived. Or we could say, we're going to see why it is that an avenger needs to come to begin with. God's people are deceived, as we see through the lens of Adam and Eve and their experience here. We want to see how it is that they are deceived, and then we want to see what God intends to do about the fact that they have been deceived. So our text, of course, is Genesis 3, 1 through the whole chapter. And as we dig into it, let me just make a couple of um, introductory context-setting comments that will help orient us to what's happening here uh, in this text If you were here for our Created to Need series, some of this will be a bit of reminder, but it's worth saying again that Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, especially, but also Genesis 2, are presented not just as the first people, not just the first human beings, but they're presented perhaps even more importantly as God's royal king and queen of the world. They're presented as a royal couple. So when we understand some of the context of the ancient Near East and the way that this text would have been read uh, by people uh, in that day, we see that Adam and Eve are presented as the king and queen of the world. They are given dominion over all that God has made, the birds of the heaven, the beasts of the field, the fish of the sea. They've been provided for by God abundantly in uh, Eden, this garden that God has supplied that uh, has all of their needs met. They don't have to work for their own food. They're given a job to do, but they don't have to work for their own food. And their reign over all that this kingdom that God has laid out for them is secure at every point except just this one place. And of course, this will be the place that the serpent strikes. The other thing that needs to be said here to help us understand what's going on in Genesis 3 relates to a broader context throughout the scriptures. Normally when we're looking at context in the Bible, we're looking at things that have come before a particular passage to help us understand. But in this, in this instance, it's helpful to look towards the end of the Bible, into the New Testament, to have a better understanding of what exactly is going on with this serpent. 
Apart from the New Testament, it's not obvious when we read Genesis 3 that the serpent in the garden is anything other than your just typical talking snake. I mean, just <laughs> your run-of-the-mill garden variety talking snake that you're always running into. That just seemed to be what's going on here. Actually, the, the Old Testament doesn't give a lot of indication throughout uh, its pages about what is happening in Genesis 3. And it's not really till you get into the New Testament that there's insight and revelation that's shed back onto the pages of Genesis chapter 3 and even throughout the Old Testament to give us a fuller understanding of what has happened. Revelation 12, 9, and then a few other key places in the New Testament, particularly uh, John chapter 8, some of Jesus' comments there, we see that the serpent of Genesis 3 is associated with the figure that we'd come to know in the New Testament as Satan, the ancient foe of God's people. So Revelation 12.9 uh, speaks of that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. This is repeated again in Revelation 20, and as I mentioned, Jesus in John chapter 8 makes references to Satan as a murderer and a liar from the beginning, having even descendants, which we see comes out from this text. So as we read Genesis 3, we need to keep in mind that the, that the Bible teaches that there are malevolent spiritual forces, there are dark forces at work in the world, that Satan is the chief of these forces, and that he was somehow active in or as the serpent, in Genesis chapter 3, this term Satan actually is, sometimes we think of it as a name, as though it's a proper name. It's not a proper name. It's really just a, uh, it's, it's probably not even a title, just a descriptor. It means in the Hebrew, adversary. So when we read of the Satan, we're really just reading of the adversary. The term devil isn't a proper name either. It means accuser. So we really actually don't even know the proper name of this malevolent force, this chief adversary. We know of him as the adversary, but he steps into the story at the very beginning of the plot line here in Genesis chapter 3 and wreaks havoc on what God has made. All right, so now into our text, Genesis 3, 1. How are God's people deceived? And probably more poignantly for us is how are we deceived? Genesis 3, 1, we're told that the serpent is crafty, or another term can be used, he's subtle. There's something about this serpent. Clearly, in Genesis 3, he is up to something. We read, when we read Genesis 3 through the lens of the New Testament, then we can see that the serpent is bent on toppling the king and the queen from their throne. Adam and Eve are made as the image of God. They are the image of, the, of God's kingship. They're set up as king and queen of the world. All of dominion, all dominion has been given to them. They rule from Eden over the whole earth. And here this serpent has come in subtly into their midst, and he's determined to topple them from their throne. But he doesn't do it directly. He does it subtly. The adversary of humanity tells them a lie wrapped in a bunch of truths. You notice that? The things that he says to them very much of what he says to them is, in fact, true. He tells them that if they eat of the tree, their eyes will be opened, they'll become like God, knowing good from evil. 
And here Satan actually is saying what's true. Because as we read a few verses later, when Adam and Eve eat from the tree, in fact, their eyes are opened and they do become like God, knowing good from evil. Even God himself says so in 3.22. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. The problem, of course, is that having one's eyes opened and becoming like God, knowing good from evil, isn't all that it's cracked up to be. They've got what they've been going after, but they've only realized too late that it wasn't really what they wanted. They thought that they would lay hold of happiness by going this direction. But rather than leading to happiness, eating the fruit has led them to shame and to death. Jesus says in John chapter 8 that Satan is a liar and a murderer from the beginning and that what Satan did in Genesis 3 is what he's been doing throughout all of human history. He wraps lies in truth and then he makes sure that we don't reckon with the inconvenient parts. He says things like, indulge your appetites and it will feel good. Cheat on this project and you'll get the promotion. Sleep with your boyfriend and you'll feel closer to each other. Play the part and you'll be accepted by the cool kids. It's not only just the kids that want to be accepted by the cool kids. All of us want to be accepted by the cool kids. And all of this is true as far as it goes. Because indulging our appetite does feel good. And cheating on the project often does get us the promotion. And sleeping with your boyfriend does often make you feel closer to each other. And playing the part does gain acceptance. But it's only after the fact that we come to realize that feeling good actually doesn't feel that good the day after. And the promotion isn't all it's cracked up to be now that you're nursing a conscience with a dull ache, like a toothache. And becoming closer to your boyfriend has only served to bond you to a guy who is willing to compromise your integrity. And acceptance rings hollow because the cool kids haven't really accepted you. They've just accepted who you've pretended to be. And the whole unspoken and underlying premise in satanic deception is that God does not have our best interest in mind. You see, that's what's going on here in this text. God has given some very clear injunctions. They're not hard to understand. In fact, just one injunction, right? He's given just one injunction. It's not that hard to understand. Don't eat from that tree. It will go poorly for you if you eat from that tree. And Satan comes along and he questions Adam and Eve on this point. And he, he says, Is it, would it really go poorly for you? Would it really go poorly for you? In fact, if you eat from this tree, your, your eyes would be opened. You would become like God. You would know good from evil. This tree is desirable for giving wisdom and making you wise. That's the path of happiness. That's what Satan is saying. He's calling into question God's wisdom, but he's also calling into question God's intentions. There's this subtle sense here in Genesis 3 that the, that the serpent is suggesting that God is withholding something. 
Don't you see Satan is saying, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, see, God doesn't really want you to have your eyes opened. He doesn't want you to be wise like he is, knowing good from evil. He's holding something back from you. And so Satan tells truths all wrapping up a lie, calling into question God's intentions, God's wisdom. But when God sets up boundaries, he's not trying to rob us of happiness. He's not trying to take away our joy. He's trying to secure our joy. So a mother isn't trying to rob her child of joy when she tells him not to run or to play in the street, right? Mother isn't trying to rob her child of joy when she tells him not to touch the hot stove. As parents, we look out at life with our experience and we see things that go poorly or go well based on the actions that can be taken. And, and the vast majority of the times, we know better than our children. We might be wrong occasionally. But God knows all the time in all instances, what is in our best interest. And when he says, don't go this way, don't do this thing, it's because he knows that that thing will lead to pain. He's not trying to take something away from us. He's trying to give us the fullness of joy. And maybe this is a particular word for a particular person this morning in a particular situation where you stand on the threshold like Adam and Eve. And you know very clearly what it is that God wants you to do. It's not complicated. It's not subtle. You know what it is that you're supposed to do. But there's this competing voice that is saying, wouldn't it be better over here? Wouldn't more joy come from this? Wouldn't more happiness come from this? And you're faced with the decision of who it is that you are going to trust. The wisdom of God against your own seeming better judgment or your own wisdom, or the wisdom of your friends, or the wisdom of the world, or whatever wisdom it is over here that is standing opposed to God's wisdom. And I would just say to you this morning, trust God. Trust God in that decision. Because whatever choice that you are going to make that will take you outside of God's choice for your life will not be a choice that will lead to blessing. You may get what you want, but you will find in the end that getting what you want isn't really what you want. What you want is the blessing that God can give. So where are you being deceived or tempted to be deceived by sin this morning? Where are you doubting God's intentions for you? You know God says, don't do it, whatever it is in your life, but it all just seems so obvious to you that your way is better than God's way for achieving happiness. But it's not. And we look at what happens to Adam and Eve is the story of humanity all throughout our history. That when we make choices that seem in our best interest, according to our wisdom, life doesn't go as well as when we follow after God's plan. So Adam and Eve, they follow the wisdom of the serpent rather than the wisdom of God. They take from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They eat from it. And sure enough, just as Satan has told them, their eyes are opened. They become like God, knowing good from evil. And it turns them towards shame. It doesn't bring happiness. Rather, it brings 
shame. So what does God do then about it? Now God steps in to the story. We've seen God as creator from afar. He's made humanity. He's made the world. But now God steps in in the midst of this situation. In verse 3, or verse 9, rather, 3-9, God steps in and he questions the man. Adam, of course, throws Eve under the bus, who in turn throws the serpent under the bus. And here we might expect that God would come down hard on the man and the woman, these chief sinners. I mean, they just had one rule, just one rule. And you can see God, I've been gone for 10 minutes. <laughs> I said one thing. Right? I mean, as a parent, you can feel that frustration, right? Amen. Amen. So we would expect that God would come down pretty hard on the man and the woman. And in one sense, he does. I mean, Adam and Eve are not without consequence here from God because of their sins. Eve will have labor in childbearing, and Adam will have labor to get his food from the ground. And ultimately, both of them will return to the dust. So there are consequences for their sin. But the stiffest penalty falls on the serpent. Look what God says to the serpent in verses 14 and 15. Let me read it again. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Irenaeus was a bishop of Lyon in the second century, and if evangelicals could have patron saints, he would be my patron saint. And he wrote some very insightful, made some very insightful observations about this particular passage. I want to read you what he wrote, because I think he's exactly right. But listen to what he says. It's very insightful. He says, God pronounced no curse against Adam personally, but against the ground in reference to his works. As a certain person among the ancients has observed, God did indeed transfer the curse to the earth that it might not remain in man. Similarly also for the woman, that they should neither perish altogether when cursed by God, nor by remaining unreprimanded, should be led to despise God. But the curse in all its fullness fell upon the serpent, which had beguiled them. And this same thing does the Lord say also in the gospel to those who are found upon his left hand. Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, which my Father hath prepared for the devil and his angels, indicating that eternal life, the eternal fire was not originally prepared for man, but for him who beguiled man and caused him to offend for him, I say, who is chief of the apostasy. It's a very interesting observation that Irenaeus makes here because what he observes is the fact that when God curses the man and the woman, he doesn't curse the man and the woman directly. He curses their work. He curses their environment. He curses uh, the way that they will move through life. But he doesn't put a curse directly upon them. But when he curses the serpent, the serpent receives the curse personally. Because you have done this, cursed are you. And so Satan, Irenaeus indicates, receives the full brunt of God's wrath and in fact makes the observation, astute observation, that hell is made originally 
for the devil and his angels. We read this in the Gospels and on in Revelation, that it was not God's intent for human beings to go there. The full weight of God's judgment falls upon the serpent. The serpent has toppled humanity from their throne. We read in the New Testament that Satan now has become the prince of the power of the air, or in 1 Corinthians, the, the god of this world. Adam and Eve were appointed by God as king and queen, but in their sin and rebellion against God, they have fallen from their throne, and Satan, like a tyrant king, has come and absconded with humanity's throne. But this reversal of fortunes will itself be reversed. This is what Genesis 3 is teaching us. The assault upon humanity waged in Genesis 3 by the serpent will not go unavenged. God's purposes will not be thwarted by the serpent's craftiness or by human sin. There will be enmity, God says, and this term enmity is just, uh, it's a Hebrew term uh, that means warfare. So you would see it throughout the Hebrew Bible speaking of uh, the Philistines, for instance, maybe fighting against the Israelites or so, that there'd be enmity or warfare between these two uh, nations. In the same way, there's going to be enmity or there's going to be warfare between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. And then this important point, and one day in the future, a seed of the woman will arise as an avenger on behalf of humanity who will crush the head of the serpent. Jesus, of course, is the promised seed of Eve. It is interesting in this text that this avenger that will arise to right the wrong that has been done by the serpent is said to, to come from the line of Eve. It's not a descendant of Adam, per se, not the descendant of the male, but a descendant of Eve. And Jesus comes. He is born of Mary, not born of Joseph, born of a virgin, coming from the line of Eve, as it were, through Mary, just as predicted who confronts and defeats the serpent. Jesus overthrows the power of the adversary through the cross and through his resurrection. But the full and final defeat of the serpent, of course, takes place at Jesus' second advent. If we read through the pages of Revelation, there's a lot in there that's hard to understand. But what does become clear as you read through the pages of the last letter of the book of the Bible is that Jesus comes back and overthrows the serpent, the ancient serpent, the foe of humanity, sends him into the lake of fire and vanquishes him utterly. All the mischief and pain and evil that has been sown in the world through the work of the serpent will one day be undone. And the good news, the good and comforting news of this first advent then, this first indication that God is sending a savior is that God is for humanity. Perhaps this morning, like Adam and Eve, you, need, you stand in need of God's avenger. You need him to come to your rescue. Perhaps your marriage is a mess. Perhaps your finances are a mess. Perhaps your employment is a mess or your grades at school are a mess. But when you reflect on the mess of your situation, 
You feel a bit like Adam and Eve because the mess that you are in is largely a mess of your own making. Your marriage is a mess because you have dysfunction that you've brought into it and because of foolish choices that you have made. Your finances are a mess because of your lack of self-control. Your work and your grades, perhaps, are a mess because you've been procrastinating. And so you ask yourself, what right do I have to think that God would send an avenger on my behalf to deliver me out of the mess that I'm in? Indeed, if you really think about it, it would seem more likely to you that if God was sending an avenger, the avenger would have you in his crosshairs. Picture Adam and Eve just after they've sinned and God shows up. And what if the very first thing that he said was, I'm sending an avenger? Oh, that wouldn't be very comforting to Adam and Eve, hiding in their sin and in their shame, certain that that avenger is coming to avenge God's honor and their disobedience. But the avenger isn't coming to dispense justice on Adam and Eve for their sin. The avenger is coming to rescue them because of what has been done to them. Perhaps you look at the mess you're in, one of your own making, and you too, like Adam and Eve, want to run and hide from God. You're not confident that after your screw-up and your mess-up that God would be for you. But the good news of Advent this morning, this first Sunday of Advent that we see in this first gospel promise from Genesis 3.15 is that God is sending Jesus to deliver us in spite of our mess-ups, in spite of our sin and our foolish choices. The good news of Advent this morning is that God loves us and that very often in spite of ourselves and our own foolish choices and that he has sent and will send again a deliverer who will one day rescue us from the tyranny of the adversary. So don't run and hide from God. If you've made a mess of things in your life, area of your life, perhaps you feel like you've made a mess of your entire life. And you are tempted because you know that you messed it up and you knew what God told you to do and you went the other way anyway. And you're tempted to run away because what hope could there be from God for you? But that is the story that's being told to us, this gospel story in Genesis 3.15, that when we mess up, God comes as an avenger to right the wrongs that have been done to us and to deliver us. Yeah, there may be consequences for your sin. There probably will be consequences for your sin, just as there were consequences with Adam and Eve. But the good news is that God will not abandon us to our foolish choices. He will not leave us in the pit that we have dug and fallen into. That he comes in the person of his son to deliver us and to make our world new and to bring us back to himself and to make us what he intended to be all along. Amen? Father, thank you that you've given us Jesus. We confess uh, in all uh, fullness and honesty this morning that we need him. We confess that 
so often we dig pits that we fall into that we can't get back out of, that we don't have the resources to fix, choices that we've made that we can't unmake, things that we've said that we can't unsay, and how we wish that we could fix the mess we've made. God, I pray for anyone here today in that place who's tempted to to run and hide, to hide their shame, to hide from you. I pray, Lord, that they would be encouraged to hear the good word this morning, Lord, that you are sending one who will deliver, that you will right all the wrongs that have been done to us, and even more graciously, you will right all the wrongs that we've done to ourselves. So God, thank you for Christ this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen.